Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you here in Billericay. Very exciting every time I come to Billericay. Uh, I was reading somewhere, is this a widely known fact that Billericay is the safest place to live in Essex? Did you know that? I was reading that on the BBC website. Safest town in Essex, I ought to say. Closely followed by Rayleigh. Uh, so there we go. So if you fancy a move, that's your next safest place. There we go. And I just found that a little interesting fact, so I thought I'd share that with you. It was on the BBC, it must be true. Um, moving on, uh, it's lovely to be here. My name is Graham. I'm one of the Eastern Baptist Association Regional Ministers. Uh, lots of you I know know our, our team leader, Beth Powney, and uh, I'm just bringing you her greetings and also greetings uh, from the whole team. Uh, the passage we're going to read from in a minute is something uh, that was shared by Nick Lear, who was your regional minister until he moved uh, down to the southwest, back into ministry uh, in the local church. Uh, and shortly before he left, he was um, sharing about this passage with us, about the disciples casting their nets on the other side. And he said, I wonder if God is saying something to us as a church. And what he shared really resonated with me. So I made it my mission uh, to wherever I can, whenever I visit churches, to share this message. Because I wonder if this is something uh, that God is saying to us at this time. But before I read it, the last thing I want to do before I get into this is just to pause and pay tribute uh, to your leaders here. I've been working with them for a few months now. Uh, I've still got hair, <laughs> mostly, on some of my hair. No, they're, they're a good bunch. And the reason I wanted to pay tribute to them is you, you've been through quite a year as a church, haven't you, with your staff team and the turnover. And, and I wonder if some of you and people looking from the outside are thinking, what is going on in that place? That's really bizarre. And I think one of the things I find interesting is that when God, I don't think God has caused any of your circumstances. I think things happen. It's like COVID, isn't it? God didn't cause COVID. Uh, but, but in the circumstance, God has been at work. And in the kind of shaking and upheaval, we're all under pressure to do the whole kind of don't panic, Mr. Mannering. Do, do you know what I mean? And the thing I really wanted to pay tribute to your leaders about, the, the elders and the trustees who I've been meeting with, is the way they've been willing to say, we're waiting for the Lord. We're waiting for what the Lord is saying. We're not rushing into anything. And I think there's, there's been pressure to rush into things. And I just wanted to publicly pray tribute to them, because that's a hard thing to do. Uh, and hopefully now we're hitting the new year, uh, things will be moving forward, and I'm sure you'll be hearing about that in due course. So tribute paid. So there we go. So can we go to the... Uh, oh, I'm doing that myself, aren't I? There we go. Uh, thankfully in the run-through I realised I couldn't read that so I've, uh, I couldn't remember which version of the Bible it's from so I'm going to read it from my phone. So this is from John chapter 21. Afterwards Jesus appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. It's a bit sad, that, isn't it? The two other disciples. It's like being one of the shepherds in the nativity play, isn't it? It's like the, oh, and some of them too. So I've lost my place now. I shouldn't do that, should I? Two of the disciples uh, were together. I'm going to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple who Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. 
And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. Not the cleverest thing to do is, I'm going to jump in the water, but before I do, I'm going to put all my clothes and coat on. There we go. There we go. Anyway, there we go. And this is the person who was leading the early church. It cheers you up, doesn't it? The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore. About a hundred yards when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, and there were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time. Jesus appears to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And God, we pray you give us ears to hear what you're saying to us at this time and the confidence and the boldness and the obedience to put your words into practice. Amen. Amen. So a quick question for you. What do you like at following? Uh, and people say to me often, oh, I wish I was one of Jesus' disciples. It must have been so amazing. Now, I have to be honest, I have mixed feelings about this one. It must have been so amazing to be one of Jesus' disciples. But there were also so many points when they looked at Jesus and thought, we don't understand. You know, when Jesus has got the 5,000 men plus women and children in front of him, and he says to the disciples, you feed them. He kind of sidling away, I'm not with him, I don't know who he is. And there's the moment when everyone leaves him in John chapter 6. And, and, and Jesus says to Peter, are you going too? And he, and he says, well, we haven't got anywhere else, which is hardly a ringing endorsement, is it? It's, hard, it's hardly a, I'm with you to the end, this is brilliant. He's like, I don't understand, I'm feeling under pressure. And being one of Jesus' disciples was such a roller coaster, wasn't it? It was such a privilege, but it was such a stretching experience. And I have to be honest with you and wonder why my Christian experience isn't more like that. It makes me wonder how boundary and safe we've made this Christian thing. We've taken this thing that God released into the wild and we perhaps have made it safe or boundary. We've we've put it in a box. We've got it in buildings and it's nice and tidy. What do we like at following? Have you ever played follow the leader? Everyone likes playing follow the leader, don't they? Till someone says, right, we're off to run a marathon. Follow me. That's not so good, is it? Following the leader is great while it's convenient, but then it becomes a bit more difficult. Well, how about the geese flying in the V formation? How do they know how to do that? It's absolutely incredible, isn't it? As you watch them flying and they rotate in and out at the front, as different people take the pressure, they take the brunt of the air pressure, and they get a bit tired, and then they say the goose word for I'm a bit tired whatever that is, and they kind of rotate out. And when you think about this, it's almost a picture of church, isn't it? And the way we kind of prefer one another and care for one another. And I think churches often go wrong when people say, this is my church. This is how I like it. It's mine. It's my precious, uh, as someone once said. And, um, And you don't want to be like him, trust me. Will we be like this, preferring one another, saying, I'm with you. I'll, I'll take the pressure for you. I'm looking after We're in this together. Well, how about this? The geese have now landed and they're following the lady and I'm looking at this picture thinking she must have food in her pocket. There's something going on here. But of course, I'm not showing you the full picture. And there's the kind of dog corralling them. And which is following Jesus more like? 
The picture without the dog or the picture with the dog? Does Jesus say, follow me if you like? Or are there times when the Holy Spirit is rounding us up? Interesting question, isn't it? And when you think about Jesus going out into the wilderness, the three Gospels have three different words, Greek words for that. And one is to be, to be, to be driven. Jesus was driven into the wilderness. And another is, is the word that she's for setting a course, like you do with your ship, I'm going that way. Jesus chose to go into the wilderness, which, which, which is true, because they sound opposite, don't they? And the truth is, well, both are true, aren't they? This is scripture. Both must be true. And sometimes God rounds us up, and sometimes God says, are you coming? And sometimes it's both, isn't it? Are we willing to follow, even if the worst should happen? I can't even look at it. I've got a problem with heights. I'm struggling with this stage, even if I want But honestly, if I'm in an airplane with Jesus, and he says, right, it's time to jump, I've got a problem as I watch my Lord leap out of the airplane. Am I following him or not? Because I want to, because he's the Lord. You know, you might want to say, is there a parachute? Because you never know with Jesus, do you? Am I following him or not? Who is Lord? The disciples have been fishing. It had been a hard day's night, and they've been working like fishermen. And they're exhausted. And Peter had said to them, uh, the disciples that were named, and the other two, uh, and it's interesting that there were others who just weren't there, what they were doing. You know, you know, it was their day off, or they were sleeping, or who knows where they were. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. And I find it interesting that people who often preach on this passage are really give Peter a hard time about this. They've been told to wait for the Holy Spirit. What was he thinking, fishing? How dare he? He should have been doing something religious. And I, I find that really challenging, and I'm reflecting on what we think this Christianity thing is. Do we think it's this thing that belongs in church buildings and that's where it exists only? Or is it something for the wild? Is it something for real life? And what's the harm in this? In Peter saying, you know, instead of sitting in this room, I'm going to go and have my Boris walk and it's going to involve fishing. It's okay. And they're like, oh, let's go fishing then. That's okay. And actually there's no harm, is there? It's all good. They go to do something restful. Also, they need to eat something, didn't they? Have you ever thought about that? Because Jesus was kind of like, well, this is what we're doing next. And he's gone. He's, he's gone. He's died. And they've seen him. They know he's back. But they're going to catch something to eat. What should have been restful, though, ends up being really stressful. And perhaps they ended up like the people uh, here on the slide at the end of a race, just absolutely exhausted. It's been a hard day's night. We've been working so hard and we caught nothing. They were tired and they were frustrated. So just kind of, why is this not working? And then there's this bloke on the shore saying, you got any fish? And they're like, no, leave us alone. That's in the message translation, obviously. Leave us alone. Because just infuriated when something's not gone the way you want. They're like, And then he says, then he says, do you want to put your net on the other side? And I stood there thinking, we're professional fishermen, you know. We know what we're doing. And even if you're not a professional fisherman, let's face it, if you take your net off this side of the boat and put it on that side of the boat, it's not going to make any difference at all, is it? So you've got these tired and frustrated disciples and this man on the shore saying, why don't you put your net on the other side? And they're like, we've just gathered it in and we want to go home and have a sleep. It's not the way we do things around here, Jesus. We know what we are doing. We are good at this. 
And as I reflect on this as a church leader, and I've been in ministry now for 25 years. I started when I was three years old, obviously. There's no other explanation. <laughs> and I, I wonder how, how often, it must happen, it does happen sometimes, let's face it, but how often, whether it happens more often than we think it does, I don't know, where we give Jesus that, look, Jesus, we're quite good at this church thing. Could you just stay over there while we get on with it? And we would never do it intentionally, don't misunderstand me. But do we ever have that, you know, Jesus, we're just so tired and we're doing it this way. We don't do things like that around here. We're doing what has always worked before. We like what we know. And when we feel frustrated, we revert to what we know. We revert to what's safe. We're faithful to our training. We're faithful for what we think church is. We're faithful to our routine. And one of the most challenging things I heard in the past few years was Ken Benjamin, the Baptist Union president. And uh, his theme was, where do we grow from here? How do things change? And it was amazing the way he was almost saying to the church, look, what what we're doing is, is fine for us, but there's not many churches that are seeing lots of people become Christians. And how could that change? How could that be different? How can we come to God and say, is it time to grow and change and do things in different ways? And Jesus says to the disciples, throw your nets on the other side. And this could have happened. This, sorry, this could have all ended to say differently, where they could have said no. And they could have gone to bed, had a sleep, and it all would have been different. Will you throw your net on the other side. A few years ago, when I had a proper job uh, in a church, uh, I was leading the church, and uh, one Sunday morning, uh, Anne, one of our church members, came to me and said, good news, my friend's become a Christian. We've been praying for her friend. And one of our customs in that church was to, to have a kind of, what's God been up to this week? So we'd often hear people say, oh, I've been talking to my friend at the school gate, or this has been happening, oh, that's been happening. And her friend had become a Christian, but there was a problem because of her friend's circumstance. She couldn't come to church on a Sunday, and she couldn't come at a time when any of our small groups were. So she said, what are we going to do with her? And she's looking at me like, you're the minister, this is your problem. And uh, I'm like, well, I don't know, what are we going to do with it? Because we've got to disciple her. So uh, what we came up with was um, we we met and had lunch once a week. It was very civilised. And uh, we met and had lunch. And Anne said to me, well, what material are we going to use? Are we going to use Alpha or Christianity Explored or Alpha Explored, if you'd like to mix things up? And uh, that was a joke. And uh, um, and I said to Anne, I had a moment, and I don't know where it came from. I said to Anne... What we're going to do is use material called Mark's Gospel. Oh, she said to me, is it expensive? No, she didn't. <laughs> and so what we did with Anne and her friend, and we invited others who'd like to come, we said, look, we gave her friend a Bible, she didn't have one, and said, look, here's Mark's Gospel, just read one of the little segments, and when we meet up, let's just talk about it. Tell us what you thought, and we'll tell you, we'll tell you what we think about it. And if I could invent a time machine and travel back 25-year-old to the three-year-old me, and say, this, you know, this is a really clever idea. I really would, because it was absolutely brilliant. And I wonder if this dear lady was discipled more effectively than people who'd been coming to church for years, because we sat and talked about the Bible. It was amazing as well, listening to someone who knew nothing about the Bible tell us what they thought of it. Really amazing conversations. 
And we were open in that moment, rather than saying, do you know, actually, this person doesn't fit into our organised structure. There's nothing we can do. We're very busy, you know. Instead, we did something differently. Or I think of a very small church in the Eastern Baptist Association. And I went and met them, and they were saying, we've saved up enough money. We think we can afford half a minister. And, of course, I wanted to say, well, do you want the right half or the left half? But I tried to resist the urge not to say that. And I said, tell me what God is doing in your community. And they said, well, the church has grown, and there used to be about eight of us, and now there's about 18, and we're growing slowly, and that's all good. Anything else? Oh, we do toddlers, and we do this, we do that. And we do messy church once a term. We get about 70 to that jaw drops, hits floor. And those numbers might be normal for you in your children's work, and and that's fine because you're a big church. But for a little tiny church, and I'm saying to them, I wonder. I wonder if instead of looking for a church minister, are you looking for someone to make disciples of those families? Are we going to get behind what God is doing? And as me, the reader, it's not up to me, is it? I'm the regional minister. I'm I'm there to ask questions. And they decided to do that. God bless them, because that's sacrificial when you're a little church, because now they are running that church, and this person is effectively trying to make disciples of people who otherwise never would come to church. Does that make sense? And, and these are the moments where I think we need to be stopping and saying to Jesus, do you know, we've had our net on this side of the boat for a long time. We know what we're doing. But, but is there something else? And are we willing to put our net on the other side? And are we willing to move our net even if it means change? Will we do things differently? Will we listen to Jesus? Will we say, Jesus, this really is your church and we mean it? really is your church and you mean it? Where is our focus? Okay, I want you to give me a thumbs up. You're enjoying it that much, are you? That's good to know. <laughs> and if you want you to hold your thumb like this, or just away from you, oh, it's even better, that's amazing. And what I want you to do very slowly is close one eye, pick an eye, any eye, and I'd like you to move your thumb towards your open eye. Don't poke yourself in the eye, can't afford the lawsuit, and just stop with the thumb just in front of your eye. I want you to reflect on what the difference is. Before you could see me, and now you're mercifully spared Uh, because the thumb and I want us to think about our focus because if this thumb is my problem and I'm holding it like this I can see God if this thumb is my problem and I'm holding it like this I can't see God that's interesting isn't it so what am I seeing what is demanding my attention what is consuming my focus It's, it's this isn't it And often we go into headless chicken mode because we go like this and we hold all our problems close and we hold everything that's going wrong and we do it's all gone wrong. And we need to learn to let that go, to put it down, to trust in God, to listen to him. Several years ago, uh, my wife and I were walking and uh, we were walking near the coast and this is why Billericay is a safe place, no flooding. (laughs) And uh, we were walking near the coast and this was the main path through the tide had come in, it was a high tide. And I looked at this and I did what any sensible person would do. I got the map out. You could tell it was several years ago because the map was on paper. And uh, I got the map out and I'm working out the way round. And I turned around and my wife was most of the way across. Trousers rolled up, boots around her neck and she was gone. And I'm looking at this water thinking, I don't, I don't like this. I don't want to walk in here. But just so you know that I'm not still standing there, uh, that's me wading through the water. 
And as we walked further around the coast in the dry, my wife was sharing about something she'd read in her Bible reading notes that morning that had said, don't ask God to direct your steps unless you're willing to move your feet. And I find that so significant. I find that so significant. I'm a radical. I'm a what can we do differently. I'm out of the box completely. I'd drive you mad if I was here for a long time, I promise you. I'm completely, what could be different? But but someone recently outdid me. There's a church in the EBA that's just brought a house for like several hundred thousand pounds to plant on an estate. And they're a church that receives home mission money or have till recently received home mission money to keep going. They're a very poor church. And there's people saying to me, what are they doing? They're mad. And I'm saying they they are. And I know this is being live streamed and this is public. And I'm saying this, but they're just Holy Spirit mad. Because they're doing this thing that makes no sense whatsoever. It's bonkers, as I've said to them publicly. But if God's in it, if God's in it, are we willing to direct God, to direct our steps? Are we willing to move our feet, even if it means making a difference? Are we willing to say to God, we'll obey you? And we can do DIY rather than outsourcing. See, as Christian church, we've been so heavily influenced by consumerism. We come to church feeling like we're customers, feeling like we need a paid team to do things for us. And that's fine, isn't it? That's fine to a point till we realise that actually we are the body of Christ. God is calling all of us to work together. God is calling all of us to play the part that he's called us to. And even the emphasis of a church is just to outsource mission and to pay others to do mission for us, to pay others to do ministry for us, then we're really in trouble because we don't understand what church is. But if a church is balanced and thinks, well, we do some of that stuff, we outsource some stuff, obviously, but we want God to to shake us up, we want God to change us, and to realise that we only ever do mission in a structured and an organised way, there's a large percentage of the population here that will never hear. Because there are people we mix with every day who are never likely to come here on a Sunday morning at this stage. And that's challenging. I mean, that's got to provoke us to think differently, hasn't it? To think, how do we learn to be honest about our faith? Because I don't think the answer is for us all to go and knock on our neighbour's door and say, do you know that Jesus died for you? I mean, that's what they need to hear. I get that. But it's not, they're going to go, huh? But, but if we could just say, do you know, I was praying about this and this happened, or I was feeling so stressed and God gave me peace. If we could learn just to talk honestly and naturally about our faith, this community could be transformed. And are we willing to go on that adventure? Or would we rather outsource our evangelism and mission? Now, let's be honest, most of us would rather outsource it, and I get that. But is that what God is calling us to? How do we get that balance? Well, to ask a different question, are we an organisation or an organism? An organisation or an organism? And... I think the answer has to be both. We are an organisation as a church. You are a charity. You need to be organised and structured. But there needs to be life as well. There needs to be life. And I think this is why churches often struggle with their fringe, where I'll meet a church and they'll say, well, you know, we've got this amazing large toddler group, but no one's ever come on a Sunday. We've never seen anyone come to faith through it, but it's, we, know, we know they're blessed. And, and in one way, I want to say, well, that's okay. It's good to bless people. But actually, sometimes that's the difference between an organisation and an organism. Because an organisation is not going to save anyone. 
You need life for that, don't you? You need life. So what you need to do with this large group, when we did a toddler group in my last church, uh, I used to go every week. It was the highlight of my week. And the leaders of the toddler group would always say to me, don't come near the craft table. Stay away. (laughs) Don't try and make any drinks. Just wander around and talk to people. Because people need to hear life. And we need to learn what it is just to share the Christian faith in very natural uh, and, and, and organic and real ways. An organisation will give the structure, but we need to share life. We need to become disciples who will make disciples, people who can be honest about our faith. And then same way on this picture, the, the, the arches are giving the organised structure and the life, the plant is growing up it. And what we need to be careful of is that our church organised structures give life rather than and they don't sap life out of thing. We need to learn what it is to release one another into everything that God has for us. So, will we move our feet? Are we ready to move? Are we ready to be like Bilbo Baggins, living in his hole in the ground in Billericay, in the Shire, in peace and tranquility? And there he is, and then the dwarves come and say, we're going to get some treasure, and he thinks, treasure! And then they say, there'll be a dragon, and he's like, no. And he moves his feet He goes, even though there's going to be a cost, even though it's risky. And there is a real balance between risk and security as we step out in faith. And if you look at the picture closely, and you can see it on there, just behind the tightrope walker is a little tether. This person is not going to die, whatever happens. It looks incredibly dangerous, but it's relatively safe, believe it or not, because he's tied tied to the rope it says not gonna die if he falls you're still not gonna get me doing it i tell you that who is lord will we take a risk even if it's not the way we do things around here and of course the answer in all these things oh gone too far the answer in all these things is scripture isn't it it's the map they've only got one map i don't think the answer in any of these things is to say how can we be more cool and trendy how can we jump on another bandwagon How can we become more biblical? How can we become more biblical? It astonishes me um, the the way so many of the things we come... Things like cafe church, and people say it's a bit new and fangled, isn't it? This interactive church. And I want to say to people, have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever read one of Jesus' sermons? And can you find me a sermon where someone didn't ask him a question? And that's cafe church. And don't you find that interesting, that that thing that we think is new and fangled may be more biblical than this? I'm not trying to be provocative. Well, I am, actually. Uh, but I'm just trying to say, there's, there's, only one, there's only one map. And it, and it is about this. It genuinely is about this. The discipleship thing I talked about earlier, just meeting with someone to talk about the Bible. Do you know, it sounds a lot like what Jesus did to me. And we had food and everything. It was wonderful. Will we move our feet? Will we be different? Will we follow Jesus' instructions? And as we come now into communion to prepare for that, my last question is, will we be like Jesus? The word became human and made his home among us. And we, we just had Christmas and we've just been thinking, and it just gets me every time. I just get so emotional when I think about this. I'm looking at this baby, baby in the womb. And that's what God chose. He's running the universe one minute 
And the next moment, he's a fetus. The God who flung stars into space listens to mum say, have you tidied your room yet? The God who's allergic to sin effectively takes a bath in it. That's incredible, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever had anyone in your house with a nut allergy. It's absolutely terrifying. I just don't want to get, expose them to anything like that. And yet Jesus, the God who cannot tolerate, he cannot be near sin, comes amongst us. The God who's all-powerful becomes a human being. The God who knows everything limits himself to a human brain. The God who's everywhere locks himself into a human body. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And ultimately, he dies on the cross. He gives his life that we... Oh, sorry, that's my fault. Can we just pop that back one, please? Is that all right? Um, The God... Oh, there he is. And the question just is, will we be like Jesus? He gives his life on the cross. And as he dies on the cross, the God is allergic to sin. The God who cannot tolerate sin holds the sin of the world on himself. And as we think of the physical agony of having those nails driven through his hands and his wrists, we think of the spiritual agony of of sin upon himself. Where's that? Oh, it's only a little bit of sin. What's that harm? And you can't imagine from God's perspective, because we watch the news and we see something happen. Someone's been murdered. So someone stole something. We think, that's terrible, that shouldn't happen. We, do you know that indignation of, that shouldn't be, that's wrong. And imagine if you're God, and you see the entirety of sin in the world in one time. And you think of how overwhelming that is, and you think, it's no wonder God can't tolerate sin. It's not that God's a bit snobby. It's just he's looking at this stuff thinking, I can't, I can't cope can't cope with this level of wrongdoing and hurt that has been inflicted on people. And God sees the moment when someone says to someone else, you're so stupid. And we might think that's a bit trivial, but God sees the pain in that person's life. He sees it. And yet he comes into the world to fix it. He comes into the world to make a difference. He comes into the world to fix it. In that moment, God the Father... God the Son and God the Holy Spirit could be saying, oh, see that world down there? We give them every chance. They got the Old Testament, they know how to get to us, and Jesus could have said, yeah, I know, idiots. And the Holy Spirit could have said, let's start again. And I thank God that he is not like us. Because instead, God demonstrates what it is to throw your nets on the other side, to do something completely different that the world might be saved. This is the God who we worship today. This is the God who we've come to follow. This is the God who I will say to, if there's an aeroplane involved, I will jump out after you, as long as you push me. And we celebrate the fact that Jesus died for us and we've all got these little things. I'm a bit nervous about seeing if I can open it. but uh, So I'm going to open that first just so I'm not distracted by it. You may want to, uh, to do that first too. To get my daughter to come and help me in a minute. Oh, look at this. Oh, we need some scissors, I think. Oh, I've done that terrible thing where the thing is open and the wafers stayed inside. <laughs> It's just like, it's a real first world problem, that, isn't it? There we go. Right, I'm all good to go now. Right. 
So as we think about Jesus, up in heaven now, laughing at me, thinking, I never had that problem at the Last Supper. But laughing in a very nice way. Sorry, just delete that bit from the live stream, please. That'll be great. The Bible says, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it, and he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so as we eat these wafers together, we remind ourselves that the body of Christ was broken for us, that we might be saved. Let's eat together. Amen. Jesus, we thank you that you gave your life for us, for this world. Thank you for saving us. But we know that you want all people to be saved. God, would you help us to learn to share our faith honestly and openly with those around us so that we might tell people the good news about you. Amen. This next bit is going to seem a bit mad, but just bear with me, okay? I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding and they do this toast at the end to the bride and groom. And it's a bit of a kind of, yeah, moment. And I wouldn't do this every communion service, but just occasionally I like to toast Jesus. Because it's one of those moments when we think about communion, I just want to say, yeah, we have been saved. So in a moment we're going to raise our plastic containers. (laughs) And I'm going to say it together. I will say the words to Jesus Christ who died for us. And we'll say it together with a bit of gusto. Uh, I actually can't, you won't have your masks on, can you? Well, it'll just, just manage. To Jesus Christ, who died for us. So let's celebrate all that he's done for us together. To Jesus Christ, who died for us. Amen. <laughs>